Well, we can be thankful that the Lord has saved our soul and that the Lord is still in the business of saving souls. And we pray that he would continue to do that work in people's lives, people that we love and people that we know. Let's uh, respond to that in prayer this morning. Our Father, we are indeed grateful. Grateful as we spoke with the children of the fact that you sent your Son to this earth to save, to rescue. Lord, what a great gift that is. It is really an unspeakable gift. We, we could um, exhaust our, our, our language, the words that are part of our vocabulary, and we would still not plumb the depths of what you have done for us, nor can we plumb the depths of our gratefulness for what you have done for us. And so, Lord, we just say thank you. And we pray now that you'd be with us as we look into your word. And that we pray that your spirit would uh, continue to teach us more of why we can be thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning just by telling you about a friend of mine. Um, this friend does not go to this church or live in Wetaskiwin, so there's no need to uh, try and guess who I'm talking about, although I noticed some people here this morning from, uh, that would know this person. I don't see this guy very often anymore, but I would still call him a friend. And this guy is not just my friend. There are many, many people who would call this guy their friend. Though there are some people that when they first meet this guy, they actually get irritated by him. Another friend once told me when he first met this guy, he wondered, wondered whether he was genuine, whether he was for real, or whether he was just putting on a show. What was it about this guy that could make him so uh, attractional to most people? And yet, we could say irritating or seemingly disingenuous, fake to a few others. It is simply this. This friend of mine is overwhelmingly positive and friendly and encouraging. And he is always, and I mean always, filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. It didn't matter what the circumstances were, he always tried to figure out how he could massage and spin whatever circumstance it was into a reason to be thankful to God. If it was sunny, he was thankful. If it was raining, he found a reason to be thankful. I'm sure if he was here this morning, For the snow, he would look outside and he would be effusive in his thankfulness, even for the snow. If he was healthy, he was thankful. If he was sick, he was thankful. It's very hard to ever be negative or even cautious when he's in the same room. And it's no surprise to me that this friend's favorite holiday of the year, he always told me, is Thanksgiving. This friend was and continues to be a real example to me of an exemplary attitude for us as Christians. This saying sounds a little corny, but we should always have an attitude of gratitude. Thanksgiving ought to surround us, and it ought to encircle us at all times. One of the areas that thankfulness needs to be, or one of the uh, reasons, and one of the areas that thankfulness needs to be pervasive and all-encompassing is in our prayers, both as individuals and in our corporate praying as a church. Our church ought to be known for its gratitude and its thanksgiving. During our worship services here in the last month or so, we've been making our way through the Apostles' first letter to Timothy. And as we get to chapter 2 of that letter, 
Paul starts to give instructions to his protege, to young Timothy, about what ought to be important to the church, uh, about the kinds of things that Timothy should set in order in an ancient church in an ancient city called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And the very first subjects, uh, subject that he talks about is prayers and thanksgivings. A church ought to be marked by those two things, which really are one and the same. At our uh, midweek prayer meeting for the last number of weeks, we've been studying the subject of prayer, and we've made our way through each book of the New Testament, which is... Uh, if you're new to the Bible, which the Bible's divided into two major sections. The Old Testament is at the beginning, and then the New Testament. And right in the middle of the New Testament are a number of letters to churches. And as we've been looking at these, we've been noticing that this connection between prayers and thanksgivings is very obvious. Just, just in its repetition. Just look at this catalog of prayer in those middle books. And I think I've listed those in your sermon notes there. Philippians 4, verse 6, is a very well-known verse on prayer. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The very next book, after Philippians, is Colossians. And just flip over to Colossians chapter 4, and verse 2. This is the one that we looked at this past Wednesday. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The next book after Colossians is 1 Thessalonians. And just go over to the end of 1 Thessalonians, the end of that letter, to chapter 5, verse, uh, let's start in verse 16. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So again, you have Rejoicing on one side, then prayer, and then giving thanks in all circumstances on the other side. And Paul, who's written these letters, models that kind of prayer just before Philippians. So if you go back to the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, here Paul writes, in verse 16, I do not cease to give, I do not stop to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So there you have thanks remembering you in, our, in my prayers. And then he talks about what he's praying for, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, etc. So for Paul, prayer ought always to be saturated and filled with gratitude. You can think of it as one of those uh, donuts at the donuts shop, Tim Hortons. You go there, one of my favorite is raspberry filled. It's got raspberries on the inside. It's got uh, icing sugar on the outside. But that's what our prayer ought to be like. Filled with thanksgiving. Filled with thanksgiving. Surrounded by gratitude. Or like my friend. He is always thankful. Always thankful. Our prayer life should be like that. Pray with thanksgiving. Well, when we jump ahead to 1 Timothy chapter 2, also written, like I said, by the Apostle Paul, we'll see the same thing. So I encourage you to turn to that letter and keep, your, uh, keep that open there and look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first seven verses for us. Paul writes this 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. It's far the reading of God's holy word. So I hope you noticed as I read there, some of the things that we can be thankful for in our prayers. The setting of this letter to Timothy is that Paul is asking Timothy to deal with some issues and some people, actually, in the church at Ephesus. Paul has moved on to a different place. He's gone on to minister somewhere else, but he tells Timothy to stay there. See that in chapter 1, verse 5. And he says, so that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine." Doctrine, verse 11 of chapter 1, says that's contrary to the true gospel. But here in chapter 2, he gets things started on setting things in order in the church. And where does he start? He starts with the church's public prayers. This in itself shows the importance and the priority of prayer for a church. First of all, then, he says, I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. When you just break this verse down, there's four things listed there, but the first three of those are just synonyms, really, just different words for prayer. Supplications, prayers, intercessions. Each word might have a a slightly different emphasis, but they basically mean the same thing. Pray. But then you have the fourth one there, thanksgivings. This one means something separate, yet it's Uh, part of what we're supposed to do for all people. In our praying to God for all people, we're supposed to give thanks to God for all people. So as I make our way through this passage on prayer, because it's Thanksgiving, I wanted to focus this morning on the things from this text for which we can be thankful. The first is, very simply, that we can be thankful for the opportunity to pray for all people. One of the reasons Paul wanted Timothy to stay in Ephesus was to deal with some false teachers who believed that in order to please God, everyone had to observe uh, the Jewish religious rituals. That's why he addresses all those things about keeping the law back in chapter 1. So Paul wants to confront those kind of, uh, we could say, elitist attitudes. These people totally missed the point of the gospel. They totally missed the point of why Jesus came. They totally missed the point of the law, actually. The law is there to help us see our need for Jesus because we are totally unable to keep the law that God required of his people to keep. The only one that could ever keep the law was Jesus himself. And so law-keeping was futile and, in fact, damning. How does Paul address that? He says, I urge that prayers and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is the theme that dominates this section. You'll see that word all in verses, 
in verse 2, in verse 4, and in verse 6. And what he means here is that rather than the gospel being exclusive to just one kind of religion or one kind of race, Paul is teaching here that the gospel is for everyone. It transcends the Jewish system. And so Paul urges the church to pray for all people. Since the gospel is for all people, we should be praying for all people. This is a great truth. We can pray for all people and be thankful for all people. It's also for our church a caution against being too insular in our prayers. Our prayers don't have to be limited to to what's going on in in a very tight circle around us. Sometimes we can get limited in our prayers, just praying for our own situation or, or for the needs just in our church. But this is saying we should pray for all people. It, it's just really expanding the scope of our praying. We don't just pray for people who are like us. We pray for all people from every nationality, from every stage of life, from every kind of status. We don't just pray for people within our circle. We have the privilege for praying for all kinds of people. We don't just pray for our church. We can pray for all the churches around us. We don't just pray locally. We pray globally. We don't just pray for each other as believers in the church. We can pray for unbelievers in our community and around the world. God's gospel is not exclusive. It is, we could say, expansive and expanding. It's a privilege to be able to pray for all people. Let's be thankful that our prayers need not be limited. Let's be thankful that God hears our prayers for all people. Let's be thankful that we can pray for all people because there's no one beyond the reach of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. You might have somebody within your circle right now that you're thinking of, somebody at work. Oh man, that person is never going to believe the gospel. Pray for them. Somebody at school. Oh, that person has to be beyond the reach of the gospel. No, he's not. This says we can pray for all people. Pray for God to get a hold of that person. No one is beyond the reach of God's love and mercy and grace. Another reason we can be thankful is that we can pray for people in high positions. Did you notice that here? Paul gives, uh, goes on to give an example of praying for all people there in verse 2. This is one group within the category of all people. It's, it's an example, an illustration. I urge that prayers and thanksgivings be made for all people. For example, we could say here, for kings and all who are in high positions. I think that Paul includes this. Because this is a group we might have a tendency to forget about, had Paul not written about it. He doesn't only write about it here in 1 Timothy. He writes about it in other places too. Romans 13 is one example I can think of. This was originally written when Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about Nero, he was not a particularly kind man when it came to Christians and the church. He made Christians uh, the scapegoats of the great fire in Rome. And he led an empire-wide persecution against them. Some legend, there's legend that he even set the fire himself and then blamed it on the Christians. Yet here, we have Paul telling the church to make prayers and thanksgivings to those in high positions. And 
Remember, Nero was the emperor during this time. For a natural mind, even in those days and in our day, that seems kind of counterintuitive. You know, why pray for them? Yet if we should pray for all people, then we should make sure we pray for all people, including those who might not always have our best interests at heart. The very people that we can sometimes talk about with contempt and with bitterness and with animosity, it says we ought to pray for them. Can you bring yourself to do that? When it gives an all-encompassing charge like pray for all people, we can maybe deal with that. Sounds good. We should be praying for all people. But when we really start to break it down into especially this one group, things become a little bit more thorny, don't they? How can we be thankful and pray for people who establish laws that are contrary to Scripture? How can we be thankful and pray for people who seem to be pressing in more and more on our religious freedoms? How can we be thankful and pray for people who pressure us to adopt, and not only adopt, but to accommodate worldly philosophies? Well, for one thing, we need to remember that this doesn't say we have to adopt those philosophies and endorse unbiblical laws. But we are told to pray personally for individuals in high positions. And then from another angle, this helps us know how to best expend our energies. When it comes to kings and those in high positions, Christians ought to be pouring their greatest energies, or, or, or ought Christians, let me ask you, ought Christians ought to be pouring their greatest energies into removing people from office? Or in protesting against the government? No. Our greatest energy should not be poured into protest. Our greatest energies ought to be poured into prayer. Yes, there's a time and place to voice concerns or to, to write letters or to, to sign petitions. I'm not saying stop doing that. Even to have peaceful protests. And the Bible, in fact, tells us that there are times when we need to obey God rather than men. But let's make sure we do not neglect to pray for kings and those in high places. In fact, let's be thankful for the privilege of being able to pray for them and to give thanks for them. It's ironic, and probably more than ironic, actually providential, that we get to this passage the very day after we were able to host the mayor's prayer breakfast here in our church. This very passage was actually read yesterday a few times. But as pastors in Wetaskiwin, we are very privileged to have a good and friendly relationship with the mayor and with town council and even extending out into the county and into our provincial and federal officials. I was thinking it was just so good for me to meet our MP yesterday, Mike Lake, and just talk about his family and realize we have similar situations. Personally, I have the privilege of having a friendly relationship with the mayor. And although he has openly told me he's not very religious, we, we still have the opportunity to pray with him and for him. We don't take that for granted. We don't take that lightly, that privilege. And he, in turn, allows us to come into every town council meeting and to open that meeting in prayer. That's actually a, a tremendous privilege for which I am thankful and not a privilege that's extended to, um, it's actually less and less places all the time. Most places do not allow that. 
But that leads right into the next reason that we can be thankful. And that is that we can be thankful for the peace and the favor in which we as a church can live and worship. Pray for those in high positions. Now it's going to tell us why, for what purpose. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When we pray for our leaders, we do it partly so that we can enjoy peace and freedom. When I first thought about that, it didn't really sound too consistent with what Paul says in other places regarding his motives. He usually seems to almost welcome suffering and, and, and a wartime mentality. He usually says things like, bring it on. <laughs> you know, doesn't say it in those words, but that's kind of what he means sometimes. Just at the end of chapter 1, last week, we talked about where Paul told Timothy to fight the good warfare. But here he says that we pray for leaders so that we might live a peaceful and quiet life. So what gives? Well, if we look ahead to the next few verses, I think Paul means for us to pray for our leaders so that we can have peace and favor, which in turn means it creates a better environment for evangelism. It creates a favorable environment for the church to grow and to flourish. And so we want to be praying for leaders so that those in authority will maybe unintentionally provide an as David Platt says, an umbrella of peace for the church to thrive and to proclaim the gospel freely. In order for that to happen, Christians must first be peacemakers before they are reactionaries. Peacemakers before they are reactionaries. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2 says, remind them, Paul's talking to uh, another guy kind of like Timothy, Titus, and he's remi- he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Like I said before, this does not mean we never make our voice heard. This definitely does not mean that we compromise the truth for the sake of peace. But it does mean our general demeanor should be one of peace and quiet. And in that way, the authorities will allow us, uh, will allow us to function and to live and to live out our, our, our divine assignment, our divine commission to go and make disciples. Brothers and sisters, we can be thankful that we, uh, as a church, can enjoy these kinds of favorable conditions in our day, at least for now. Yet we live, yes, we live in crazy times, and yes, the church is being increasingly uh, marginalized and even scrutinized in our practices. But for the time being, we ought to be thankful that we can, we, sh- we ought always to be thankful. But now especially, we can be thankful that we can function and operate freely and peacefully in our society. Let's be thankful. Let's keep praying to that end. Our goal then is to be godly and dignified in every way. Rather than be known for continually poking and continually prodding and continually provoking, if and when we do get opposition, it should always be while we're behaving in a godly and dignified way. That's our general demeanor as believers that God wants us to have. And that brings us to the main reasons that we can be thankful. Now we get to the heart of the matter and to the heart of 
why we pray widely and inclusively, and to the heart of our thanksgiving. And these next reasons have everything to do with God. We can be thankful that God desires all people to be saved. To pray for all people is good and it is pleasing. Look at verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is why we pray for all people, including those in high positions. We pray to the end that they might be saved. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I know this is a bit of a, uh, of a sticky passage to some who like to debate theological kinds of things. And so let me just address that very quickly, but I'm going to tell you I'm not going to address it exhaustively. If you want to talk more about that, I usually stand over by the light post over there and I'd be happy to engage in a conversation about that. The, the conundrum is, if God desires all people to be saved, and yet we know that not everyone does get saved, does that mean that God's desire, God's will, is somehow thwarted? Do God's wishes not always come true? Well, the answer is, No, whatever God purposes will always come to pass. He is God, after all. But what about God's desire, then? Well, again, I'm going to uh, ask David Platt, or have David Platt help me a little bit, just to show how it works, because I think he gives a good illustration that helps us with this. He, He differentiates between God's decreed will, so this is sort of big picture, what he ordains to happen in the world, and his declared will. So decreed will and declared will, what, what God de- commands in his word. Some people might call this God's revealed will. And, and Plod illustrates that really well. He says, let's assume I'm going to lie to someone tomorrow. Question, is my lying to that person in the will of God? Well, no, not in the sense of God's declared revealed will. He said clearly, do not lie many different places. And so I'd be disobeying God's will. At the same time, my lie does not catch God by surprise. He's not going to say, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Everything I do, he says, is ultimately under the sovereignty of his decreed will. So in that sense, and in that sense only, my lying is actually in his will. God is sovereign even over the worst things in the world, though he himself never sins or does evil. I know, that's hard to wrap your head around. But I hope you just kind of see the difference there. God's desire and God's big picture will. And so in that sense, Paul can say that God desires all people to be saved, even though not all will be, and even though the doctrine of election is also very clear in Scripture. God's desire... We see that in places like John 3.16, which I mentioned before, which you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's because God desires all people to be saved that he sent his son to the earth and to the cross. Because of God's desire is why we have the cross. In Ezekiel 33.11, it says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So let's make sure 
we don't get too hung up here in theological puzzles. The point here is that we can be thankful and pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved. This great truth really unleashes the church and propels us forward to to pray for the unsaved. And we can do that with thankfulness, knowing that God might be pleased to use our prayers and might be uh, pleased to use our proclamations of the gospel. Paul talks about that in verse 7 in terms of himself, to bring people to himself in saving faith. Isn't that a great privilege? We can pray in that direction. And that brings us to the last point for which we can be thankful today. And that is for the very gospel itself. The good news of Jesus Christ. We can be thankful that God has made salvation possible through the gospel. And that gospel is is painted so beautifully here in this summons to thankfulness and prayer. I almost just want to read this without comment. It's so picturesque and points to the fact that it's something only the all-wise God could think of and design and, and purpose to accomplish. But I will read it and limit myself to just a couple of comments and then send out a call to embrace the gospel. Look again at 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For, this is the ground for everything. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You couldn't say it any clearer than that. It, it couldn't be said any more succinct and beautiful than that. Look at, just look at the points here. In contrast to all the alls in this section, there is only one God and one Savior. When it comes to all people, it says that something had to deal with, with, with the chasm between God and man. Something came between and severed that relationship, namely our sin. Our, our sin creates a separation between holy God and sinful man. There's something in between that, that, that can't be bridged, our sin. But in his love and kindness, God sent, uh, sent something else into that place in between. He sent someone. He sent what he calls here a mediator. He sent another man, the man Christ Jesus. Only unlike man, unlike humankind, this man never sinned. And that's why he can be our mediator, our representative, the representative man. We needed someone to represent us as a man who never sinned. That way he becomes our substitute. This man, next point, gave himself as a ransom for all. And and the all here really means all manner of people. Sticking with the context, right? All kinds of people from all different races, all different areas, all different statuses. This man gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom. Uh, You think of a ransom, this is an exchange price. What was the price needed to pay for the wages of sin, which is death? That price was the death of a sinless man. That was the mediation. 
That was the ransom price. And Christ Jesus paid it in full. He paid it with his life in order to save our lives. But we need to appropriate that. We need need to turn away from our sins in deep sorrow, with deep contrition, admitting that we have sinned against holy God. This is now our response, which isn't included here, but is included all over the New Testament. We have to admit that we have sinned against holy God, and we have to rely upon, which really means faith, to to put all of our hope in, Christ Jesus' accomplishments alone to save us. This is the gospel. This is why you are part of a church. Friend, if you're here today and have never understood your need for a Savior, maybe you've thought before now that your works can save you. Somehow if you do enough good things and they outweigh the bad things, then then God will look upon you with favor. Or maybe you've never understood that you are hopeless without the gospel, that somehow you could just squeeze in to heaven. Or maybe you've thought that your sin can never be redeemed that you've done too many bad things. Friend, this here is good news for you. God has put this offer in front of you today. And so I would simply say to you, repent and believe the gospel. And for those of us to whom God has already granted repentance through his kindness, and to those of us to whom God has already awakened our faith, I hope that these words will call you and will call us together as a church to pray more diligently for all people and to proclaim his gospel. But on this Thanksgiving, I pray that these words would help you to be just overflowing and effusive in your gratitude and in thanksgiving toward God, the one that has so graciously and has so mercifully and has so lovingly saved you. Let's bow together in prayer. And as I pray, I'm going to ask the musicians to come. Our God and our great God and our Heavenly Father, our hearts are, as we sung earlier, our hearts are filled with thankfulness. Just even at the thought of your great rescue mission toward all people, Thank you for desiring our salvation. And thank you for accomplishing our salvation through your Son who gave himself as a ransom for all. We are truly grateful and awed and amazed that you would do such a thing, such a self-giving, sacrificial, out-of-this-world loving Lord we pray that you would continue to rescue the perishing through the gospel for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior thank you our Father for salvation so rich so full and so free it's in Jesus name that we pray these things with thanksgiving Amen